Brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be here this morning as a big family. I know uh, it's a little bit different from normal on a Christmas day to just be with your little family, but the church is a gathering of brothers and sisters who find ourselves in Christ together. And so it really is a joy for me, as I pray it is a joy for you to be together to gather this morning. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Adam Ashoff. I'm the preaching pastor here. I serve as one of the elders and have the specific role to preach God's word weekly, most of the time. Curtis last week did a wonderful job in Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. So we're going to pick up there in Matthew chapter 2 and look at verses 1 to 12. Uh, I really do count it the highest privilege and greatest joy to get to uh, study the word of God each week and then share the good news of the gospel and also the wider wisdom of the Word of God. So if you're new to the church, uh, part of the wider wisdom of the Word of God is everything surrounding who Jesus is and how he came and why he came. And so this morning, uh, we'll be looking at after he was born, uh, that paints a picture of uh, in advance why he came. It starts to tell the story of what Matthew is trying to show in his gospel account, in his view of the coming of the Son of God, of what he came for, that he is truly the King of the world. He is God come in human flesh. In the church, we call that the incarnation. And when you think about that, uh, we have an account here in Matthew. We have one in Luke we have one in John, and Mark's gospel gets right into it. But when you think about those different accounts and how they've been around for, for centuries, we could take all of our documented evidence of our own birth, maybe dig up that uh, birth certificate somewhere if you still have it, and, and you can assemble all the evidence in this room for the account of all of our existence, and it would pale in comparison to the evidence there is for the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is what's so amazing is to not just come here and see this account and think, oh, that's a wonderful little story for this time of year. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. But to see this is the history of the universe. This is the history of the world. This is what we even base our calendar system on. And it goes back to the account we have that God came in human flesh, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, to save us from our sins. And so if you're not in Matthew 2, hopefully you could get there. You could find it in a Bible in front of you if you didn't bring one today. But if you are there, I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. And then we will spend some time this morning looking at the worship of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Follow as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now Herod, or when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod, or then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, 
Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is God's word to us. What a wonderful gift on Christmas Day, that we have God's word. May he bless the preaching and hearing and doing of it today. Well, if I uh, said, hey, let's um, have a fun time as a family, as families often do, and uh, just tell me of a favorite family Christmas tradition that you have, and some of you raise your hand and tell us. And if we did that, it would, it would take up the entirety of the state. Because with every family represented in here, you may have your own tradition. And then from the families that you came from may have other traditions. And that's wonderful. And, and, and we rejoice in that. That's what makes, I think, this time of year so special for each individual family and each individual person. Is the traditions that you were raised in and you raised around. And it, it, you can't. Uh, wait for each year, and then when they're done, you're like, I'm so glad I get to wait a whole nother year to do all that again. But if I had a different question for you, uh, where did that tradition come from? If there was something unique to your family, uh, how did it get here? Where did it start? That might be harder to answer. Uh, my own family, one that we observed again last night that came from my side, a traditional meal of a toast, and then... And a, a meal fit for an um, Eastern European king, particularly from the Slovakia region. A bowl of sauerkraut and mashed potatoes and a uh, bowl of babalki, which is a rolled up dough dipped in milk with a little poppy seed on it. And that's the meal. It grew up going to my mom's side of the family to have this meal on Christmas Eve. And I was never told where that tradition came from. You can Google it now and find out what those babalki is, at least. And, but for me, it was a tale as old as time. You know, and so um, in thinking about it, I dug into it and found that ancestors back in the 800s in Slovakia were defending a small town from the rising Moravian Empire under Savotapluk the Great. And uh, cut off from all supplies. The only way they could get food into this fair town from the evil Savatpluk the Great was for barrels to come from a neighboring town over. And in those barrels, guess what there was? Potatoes, cabbage, and babalki. And as the war waged on, there was, there was no way of escaping this, this evil regime 
until a last set of barrels came down the river, kind of like the um, scene in Lord of the Rings, dwarves being stuffed into them. And uh, men were hiding in there with their weapons to help overcome this evil king who was trying to oppress this little town. And as they arrived, one last barrel of a long-awaited king was going to come in, my great-great-great-grandfather, Augustus Ashoff. And when they opened the barrel and expected to see Augustus Ashoff, they looked, the town gathered around on Christmas Eve, and you know what they found in the barrel? A bunch of baloney, just like that story. So when we invite people into our Christmas Eve tradition and wonder why we're eating said items, I keep them on the edge of their seats, tell that story, and then finish. And some people get it, and some are still figuring out, like, wait a second. I'm Googling this, and clearly the Moravian Empire didn't exist under Slovakia. Baloney. Origins of Christmas traditions, personal or public, can come under a great deal of scrutiny. And as a preacher, I listen to a lot of preaching. And uh, when you come to Christmas... And I'm talking about just the tradition of Christmas, what we do with gifts and all the stuff around it. You really come to two differing points of view. And it becomes a debate which came first, you know, the pagans or the Christians, the chicken or the egg. Was it that Christians saw the rise of pagan rituals around them like Sol Invictus and Saturnalia and tried to redeem them by saying that December 25th was the date of Christ's birth? And so then the traditions you have around Christmas was a form of us trying to redeem all that which was pagan. Or some take the opposing view and say, no, no, no. It was that the Christians under uh, Constantine and the flourishing of Christianity in the 300s was so impressive and so vast and so getting out of control that the pagans saw that and they took the practices and traditions the Christians were doing and they tried to warp and twist them. So whose holiday is it around December 25? Do you put up a tree because godless Vikings put up evergreens in their homes to the false sun god Balder? Or do you put up a tree following in the German tradition credited to Martin Luther, who history has it, was walking home one wintry night and through the evergreens surrounding him were glistening stars and it was such a beautiful scene that he wanted to capture it for his family. So he cut a tree down and brought it into his house and set it up and hung candles from it, which would seem like a great fire hazard. (laughs) And he even shaped it so it was very triangular in order to teach his children about the Trinity. Parents, catechize your babies every chance you get. Is that why we do Christmas trees? Or should we stay away because of those druids? You could could try to get lost on those arguments all you want, is the point. You can go back and forth of, should we do a wreath? Should we have wassail? You know, eggnog, if you go back and do the research, was a... uh, uh, Offering to the God of Noggin. (laughs) Don't drink it. Especially the kind with high fructose corn syrup. My point of all this is this. When you come to today, 
don't overcomplicate the thing. That I'm here and you're here and we are all here for one simple reason, to worship Jesus Christ. That's it. We're actually here on the Lord's Day because it's the Lord's Day, not because it's Christmas Day. Though you all look wonderful in your red and green attire. We're not having a service because is it Christmas, the birth? That's not why we're gathered, saints. We're gathered today as we did a week ago and we'll do a week from now because it's the Lord's Day. It just so happens Christmas is today too. But every Lord's Day, it is good for you and I to gather with others in the body of Christ to do one thing and one thing only. Worship Jesus Christ. And and that's what today's passage focuses our attention on. The worship of Jesus Christ. But we will see it One of two ways. Those who you would have expected to worship Jesus Christ, missing it entirely. And those who would have been least expected to worship Christ, getting it. And we all fall into one of those two categories. Every person on the planet, it's not a difference of theism, as in some believe in God and some don't believe in God. The gospel is not trying to make people theists. It's spreading the good news of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, so that you are a Christian. Not just believing generally in a higher power that can, uh, many pathways lead to the same point in the end. Oh, no, no, no. The world has one great divide, and it is between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And those who are in Christ exist to worship Jesus Christ. And we'll see that today. So, let's look today, first, uh, first section, verses 1 to 6, that I just read, in the uninterested religious of all people, the ones you would expect first in the list that should have been worshipers of the coming of the Son of God, the religious were uninterested. Let me set the scene real quick and... Uh, Verses 1 to 4, before we meet these uninterested religious. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And so here's the scene after Jesus was born. So Curtis left off last week where Jesus is born in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. But now we find Jesus not in that manger anymore. We know that because verse 11 says, after coming into the house. So some time has passed on after the birth of Jesus. How much time? We don't know. Not only is he no longer in the manger scene, uh, he is now in some home. Uh, Luke's account, if you read that parallel account in chapter 2, particularly verses 21 to 38, uh, you see Jesus... As a child, after a time of purification for Mary, he is brought to the temple and an offering is to be given for a firstborn child according to Old Testament law. And what do they offer in Luke 2? The offering of a peasant, of poor people with no money. Two birds. But see, that wouldn't make sense if they had already been given gold, right? 
So clearly the time of them even waiting to take Jesus to the temple to present him and all they could afford was the cheapest offering that poor people could have at the time, which would be uh, two pigeons. No, if they would have had this gold from these wise men already, they would have had enough, clearly enough to offer a lamb. So a secondary evidence that this isn't like immediately thereafter and then also we know from verse 16, uh, what's called the slaughter of the innocents. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he, he was very mad and he sent an edict that all male children in Bethlehem and vicinity two years and under should be killed. And two years and under means that he was finding some age range that he could try to put in there that, that how old is this Christ child. So those three evidences combined would lead us to think that a decent amount of time has passed. Could have been two weeks, two months, even two years, based on verse 16. So sorry, parents, for your nativity scenes that now need to be um, uh, taken apart when you get home. Um, young kids who have Lego sets, uh, a more accurate rendering would be take mom's uh, don't mess with it too much like I did last night and broke a piece off an angel's wings. So uh, you could have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and shepherds and then take the wise men like two rooms over and then get a bunch of your Legos, the ones that particularly look like uh, wise men, you know, um, astrologers, magicians, because that's what these guys are. And uh, you could assemble them at a few towns over. They're a few months behind. And now you have an accurate depiction of the birth of Jesus. Okay, side note. Back to the text. In those days, Herod was king and magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, Herod is uh, the ruler over Jerusalem from 37 to 4 BC. He was not even really Jewish. He was a half Jew. He was an Edomite. And um, he was a, a puppet king for Rome. And he did some good things in rebuilding uh, the temple. It was, it was quite impressive under him. And he, he was good at ruling, I would say, when it just came to the, the uh, politics of it and infrastructure of it, but he was a terrible man. He was a scared man. He was a self-protective, insecure king who anybody that would threaten his rule and reign, he would kill off, not just enemies, but even his own children. So that's where you see him trying to kill off all children, all firstborn males, to and under in verse 16. Last but not least, we meet the Magi, and these are uh, wise men. They're not we three kings. The only reason we think there's three is because of three types of gifts, but this could have been some type of entourage, and even if you look uh, in verse 3, the, or sorry, they arrive in Jerusalem. They don't even arrive in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles southwest of Jerusalem, so think uh, if, if Jerusalem is yeah, the center of Jerusalem would be uh, the center of Hickory, like the Viewmont area. Uh, we'll call the Chick-fil-A on 127 because, you know, you all love it. The center of Hickory. Um, you know, a five-mile journey from there would be our own very little town of Bethlehem across the river. It's about five miles up to there. So that's, that's where Jesus is in Bethlehem. But these wise men, these magi, these uh, astrologers and magicians... Um, they're, they're like in Daniel chapter 1, uh, the wise men there. They're trained in all the, the best of the arts and sciences of Persia. Now back in Daniel 1, it was Babylon, which became Medo-Persia. But nonetheless, these are uh, educated men. 
And so they, they watched the skies. And in the ancient Near East, there was a combination of uh, charting the skies and stars and lining them up with the birth of important people. Some of that was great science, and some of it was just mythology. And in their world, it was a combination. So, you know, to the college freshmen going back this J term and saying, you know, I'm just going to take a, a class that has nothing to do with my major. You're this brainy uh, engineer or uh, doing physics or some high-level math. And then you say, I want to dabble in January in Greek mythology. Go for it. Get a well-rounded education as long as it counts for credit, I'm on your side, parents. Uh, but that's kind of a picture of who these magi are. They, they, uh, they would know a little bit about everything. So when they're looking for this king that's arriving, they know enough about the arrival of a Messiah for the Jewish people in verse 2 to have come west. They started in the east. We saw the star when we were in the east and have come to worship him. They came west to Jerusalem. And as we said, uh, the, the distance between what was the area of Babylon in Daniel to Jerusalem is about 700 miles. So this would have taken quite some time to get there. They arrive with a caravan and um, they come to Jerusalem and they're just in the streets, verse 2, asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And word gets around, verse 3, Herod the king Heard this, notice, so this caravan arrives in Jerusalem and the city is in an uproar enough that Herod the king hears about these wise men coming looking for the Messiah, the king of Israel that is to be born and he's troubled because he's insecure and he doesn't want anybody encroaching on his kingdom and all Jerusalem is troubled with them. And it's probably the old adage, uh, when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Well, when insecure King Herod ain't happy, nobody's happy. As in, the city would be set on edge. Uh, if this king, over the course of his time as king over Jerusalem, has been known to kill his own family members, who knows who he'll kill next? And you see the sad result of that down in verse 16, don't you? So that's why Jerusalem was troubled. It's not like Jerusalem is worried about a Messiah coming. That would be good news for them. They know it's trouble when King Herod is agitated. So verse 4, he gathers together, and here we meet the religious, the chief priests and scribes of the people, and asks them where this Messiah is to be born, showing his own ignorance of the Old Testament. He gets these two types of people there in verse 4. The chief priests, so they would have been the holiest men of all Jerusalem, those who offer the sacrifices in the temple, and he gets the scribes, and those would have been the smartest, most educated Bible guys. So he has the holiest and the headiest, if you want to call them those two groups. And he gets them all together and says, uh, so word on the street from these kings or these, these wise men, these astrologers and magicians and intelligentsia from, from Persia come, and there's a bunch of them guys, and they're asking, is the king of the Jews here? And ahem, I'm kind of the king of the Jews if you haven't caught wind. Um, but maybe I'm not, so who are we looking for? And these scribes and chief priests know exactly where to go. They go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they quote in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, this little bitty town, this forgotten town, just like when people are impressed with Hickory, they might not look to, uh, you know, Bethlehem right away if they're trying to move into our fair city. 
And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means among the leader, least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And those two phrases uh, are, are pointing backwards to the greatest king Israel ever had, David. He was both their greatest ruler, and in 2 Samuel 5, he was one who was called to shepherd the people of Israel. So this is, again, back to chapter 1, a son of David, one who comes from his lineage, but is going to be the greatest king ever who will be a ruler and a shepherd. And that troubles Herod. But here's the troubling thing for the religious guys. They disappear after this. There is no mention of these religious rulers, these chief priests, the holiest men, and scribes, the headiest men who know the most Bible, who be like, yeah, 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 Micah 5, oh, got that one. Hey, everybody, we, we found the texts. They found the text for the Messiah, but they weren't what? Interested in him. They're not leading. You would have thought they would have put it all together and said, hey, Bethlehem is only five miles away. Let's all get together and go. Let's, let's beat these guys who came 700 miles from Persia to see who this is. No, they just see it and they're like, meh. A ruler, a shepherd, one who has been predicted to come from Bethlehem. And you're guys saying you followed a star to get here and that all happened. Meh. They might have even known Numbers 24. 17, a prophecy from the book of Numbers that often overlooked where it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. They, they would have known these texts, and yet these religious guys have all the answers but miss the point of the question that Herod had asked them. Who is this Messiah? Where should we look for them? And they know, and they don't care. And I think what we walk away from this little picture of these guys is this. This most super religious people can miss the Messiah. That would be us. In here today. Not the people sitting at home right now. Enjoying gifts and all the trappings of Christmas Day. The first people that miss the Messiah are the religious, you know, the Bible Belt champions of the world, the Awana All-Stars, the youth group groupies, the Sunday school Superman and Superwoman. I'll go on all day. We would miss them if we're indifferent, if we shrug when we have a clear picture from the Word of God sitting right in front of us. And you know what? I'm sure they were kind of excited to, to find that text and to say, oh yeah, yeah, I totally know that one. And, and, and wax eloquent about all the texts they know about the Messiah. But the problem wasn't their head, it was their heart. They didn't care. And that will carry through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, won't it? Put to death at the hands of the religious Indifferent that they have the, 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 the prophetic texts of the king of the Jews arriving. And they shrug. The uninterested religious. But it's not just the uninterested religious that meet him. Next let's meet Herod, the unreceptive ruler. Verse 7 and 8. After they shrug meeting Jesus off. Verse 7 and 8. Then Herod secretly called the Magi. And, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. 
So he left them out of this gathering of all the scribes and priests. He didn't call them into that room. Now that he knows that, yes, these guys are right. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. He knows the where. He just needs to know the when so he could zero it in. And Herod secretly calls the Magi and determines from them the exact time the star appears. And he sends them to Bethlehem and said, go. He sounds so sincere, doesn't he? Search carefully for this child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Right? This king, to quote the poet, Buddy the Elf sits on a throne of lies. He does not want to come and worship this Christ child. You, you see what he does in verse 16 through 19. He, he wants this Christ child dead. He wants no threat to his throne. And sadly, this is, this is the state of many today too. I would say they can move from the... And anybody could be indifferent to the Christ. But now we have a picture of the world, not just in indifference, but in agitation towards Christ. A more sinister dimension. That the, um, the ones who, who oppose Christ and see him as a threat. And how do you see Christ as a threat? When you sit on a throne and you know that he deserves to be there. And this is the world. But notice something about a worldly person like Herod. There's a veneer of appreciation, isn't there? Oh, go search carefully for him. Oh, yes, yes. Very interested in meeting this Christ child. You know, not just that. I would love to be able to go see him to, to worship him. And if we're ever living in an age of a veneer of appreciation for Jesus, it's today. And oh, yeah, good guy. Great guy, even. So kind, so compassionate, so wonderful. But the moment you're told that you need to bow before him and remove yourself from the throne and put Christ on the throne, then it's fisticuffs. I want to keep him away. Because if I'm not on the throne of my life and Christ is, then I don't get to call the shots anymore. And this was the problem of Herod, and this is the problem of many today. Unwilling to worship Christ today because of self-worship. But the sad part of that is that the throne that anybody puts themselves on, Herod or anyone today who rejects Christ and doesn't see him worthy of worship, it's a throne that they don't realize they're chained to. And Christ comes to free you from the throne of self-worship. Because we're not big enough to be worshipped. We're not even close. We're too fallen in our own sinfulness to deserve even a moment of worship. It's the worst thing for us. But when we put Christ on the throne, then we rightly see who's God and we rightly see who we are. So, so this is the unreceptive ruler. This is the worldly wise who, who want to make it look like they're interested, but they're really opposed. But now let's get to the good part. The high point of our worship this morning, and it's this, the unashamed wise. Let's watch these wise men who ironically, if they were back in Babylon, like in the time of Daniel, they would have been the rejectors. They would have been looking for anybody else to worship besides God. But God and his sovereignty over these wise men is able to 
get them here. Get them all the way to Jerusalem. And now not just Jerusalem, he's going to get them the last five miles to Bethlehem. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way. And, and, and they had lost sight of the star, the star which they had seen in the east. It's back, and now it's standing over the home where the child was. Friend, this is amazing. Just that moment in verse 9. You, there's so many differing opinions of what this star was that got these guys, not just to Jerusalem, all the way, 700 miles away from, from Persia and Babylon to here. You know, was it a star that was moving? What is it, Halley's Comet? Was it, lay that aside. And just receive this morning the good news that when God wants to get you where he wants you to be, to know him, he'll do it however he pleases. You know, the debates that have raged on for the centuries, what type of star was it? Was it something like the glory of God in the Old Testament? A cloud by day and a fire by night? Was it an angel who sometimes are described in the same language? We'll find out in heaven one day. But what you need to know today is this. You're here for the very same reason. You're in this room this morning because God loves you and is gracious towards you and somehow led you into here today to hear the good news of the gospel. That's, that's the best part of this, is, is you see that God can use any means necessary to get someone where he wants them to be to see Christ. And you could think about your own testimony and come up afterwards and tell me how crazy it was, how unlikely it was that you first heard the good news, right? Or you may come down here and say, oh, it was very ordinary. No, it was not. Even if you were brought to church, like some of you young ones are today, and you think that's just a very ordinary thing, one day you'll talk to your parents and ask them how they came to Christ. And maybe that's where you go, whoa, you guys were so far off. If he would have not brought you guys to Christ, I wouldn't have been raised in the church. That's nothing to shrug at. And if it wasn't your parents, if they were raised in the church, somewhere down the line, back in your family history, God worked in a way that you would have never guessed to bring somebody into your life, family or friend, so that you could hear the good news of the gospel. And I know some people out there look at the sky and say, I need to see a sign in the sky. I need to see something on Orion's belt, you know, looking at the stars that says, believe in Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus is called in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. The bright morning star. And you know in 2 Peter 1.19. Peter who saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And it would have been a very good story to tell. He says we have something better than that. The prophetic word. The preached word of God. To which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. And listen to this. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. You don't need a star in the sky. You need a star in your heart. And that's not cliche. You need the bright morning star, the son of David, Jesus Christ, to illuminate your heart, to see him for who he is and love him for what he's done. That's how he changes you. All the evidence, all the things he can do on the outside, praise God for, but it's the change on the inside. And that's the only explanation for how these wise men got there. Look at their response in verse 10. Not only did they see and they came, they saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
That's a response of worship. And get this, they're not even in the house yet. Did you notice that? They're just excited that the pathway that was leading them to Christ reappeared. But now they get into the house, and here you see a picture of true worship. They come into the house, verse 11. They see the child with Mary, his mother. They fall to the ground and worship him. And then they open the treasures they brought and present to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there in verse 11 is such a picture of true worship. Coming, bowing, giving. Is that your heart today when you think of what God has done for you in Christ? And you've come this morning. Good. But as your heart bowed down to him in worship and praise for who he is and what he's done and are you giving of your own life? I'm not talking about gifts. of You can never give back to God what he's given you in Christ, but your life can be a life of worship, Romans 12.1 says. A life of worship, and part of that was the singing this morning. Part of that is even right now rejoicing in the gospel. If you're not in Christ today, you may be wondering, what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. And just like this story tells, came in a very humble way. He didn't come to the temple. He wasn't born there in front of the kings. He was born in obscurity. He was just like us. But there was a way in which he was very different from us. He never sinned. And he lived the perfect life that you and I can't live. And then he went even a step further than not just living a perfect life for his holy father in heaven. He went to the cross and died on it to forgive your sins. And if you trust in him by faith, you can be born again. And there's some little clues as to how, how wonderful Jesus is and the gifts given. These, these are just something I would take and put in your mind to remember. Gold would be the gift given to a king and Jesus is the king. And frankincense was used in the Old Testament time to, to add a savory smell to an already perfect offering. The only time frankincense is added to an offering in the Old Testament system is to one that was a meal offering, one of pure praise, to be a pleasing aroma to God. It was never added to a sin offering. Why is that important? Well, maybe because Jesus had no sin in his life. There was no sin in his life that needed an offering for it. He was an offering for your sin and my sin. So he was, he was not only the king, but he was perfect in every way. And then myrrh was odd thing to give a gift to a newborn baby, myrrh. Because myrrh, vast majority of the time in the ancient Near East, is used to embalm the dead. Now, is that foreshadowing? I don't know. It's just one of those gifts, and you get them every year, that you're like, are you trying to tell me something? I, I think there's a 10-year streak of Shannon giving me tools. And I'm always like, sweet, what is this for again? I mean, thanks for buying it in, in black and gold. I like that it matches the rest of them. DeWalt, and they really look good. Same condition I got them in. Might be trying to say, Adam, take and use. But Mar does stand out, except when you know the full story of the life of Christ, that he did come to die. And there you have the whole gospel right there in these gifts. He is king, he is perfect, and he had to die. So what do you do with him today? Verse 12 to wrap this up. And it's, a, it's an interesting little thought. 
Uh, this story ends with saying the Magi were warned not to go back to Herod, but to leave another way. And they did. And Herod never found the Christ, though he killed many others. But I want to take one little phrase there. They left for their own country by another way and, and challenge you with this. When you come to Christ, this is the absolute honest truth about it. You don't go back the same way you came. You're a transformed life. When you come to worship Christ, and that's not in that text, but it's in that text. You don't go back the way you came. You come this way, you bring whatever it is in your life that had you going down the path to self-worship and separation from God forever. But when Christ comes into your life, like these magi, you are sent back in a different direction. And that's the promise and hope of Jesus Christ transforming your life today. And those of you that know Christ, feel that in your heart, don't you? And those of you that don't know Christ, I would invite you to ask him to save you today. If you came in here one way, burdened by your sin, lost, wandering, hopeless, helpless, Christ offers his life to you today and says, come, have your sins forgiven and go, a worshiper of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for its goodness and kindness to us. Thank you that we could come in here one way and leave a different way because of the good news of the gospel. Thank you for its precious and powerful and life-changing truths about your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So as we sing these final songs together, may our hearts fill up and swell up in a way that does parallel these wise men who rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because of all that they knew. And they knew far less than we do. But with what they knew, they worshipped and they gave themselves. And we pray we do the same now today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.